You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. You should know by now that men in the Bugatti, he's a member of the Illuminati. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, your source for art, culture, politics, and religion. Serious conversation that tries not to take itself too seriously. If you like what you hear, go to iTunes and leave a nice review. You can also like our Facebook page for more content and conversation. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Do whatever that you like, do whatever, baby, cause I, oh, I don't care, yeah, yeah, it's alright, alright, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Hey, everybody. Danny Anderson here. I'm an assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania, and the host of this show. Welcome to episode 11 of Sectarian Review, the second of our two episodes about conspiracy theories. We hope that you enjoyed the first one. If you haven't listened to it, you may want to stop right here and go back and catch up and then join us when you're done. Uh, once again, Jordan Poss and I go to town about conspiracy theories, and in this part we get to some more contemporary ones, so you'll have that to look forward to. Before we get started, though, I have a couple of quick announcements. First, if you haven't done so, I really invite you to check out our Facebook page and like it, as that's become a nice little forum for me to interact with you, the dear listener, which is kind of my favorite part of doing this. Uh, we also post some extra stuff there that adds to this conversation, too. Uh, and secondly, the really exciting news. I've been invited really generously to take this show on the road this summer to the Wild Goose Festival in Hot Springs, North Carolina. The festival runs from July 7th through 11th, and it's a really neat, really weird Christian event. I won't even bother trying to describe it here, but you can go to wildgoosefestival.org to look into it yourself. In short, Sectarian Review is part of a multi-day podcasting stage. They call it the Goosecast. We'll be recording a live show uh, along with some other really big shows, including Homebrew Christianity, Doug Paget, Science Mike, The Liturgist uh, Podcast, uh, Love in a Dangerous Time, and many other shows, including our network's own Christian Feminist Podcast. This is pretty cool, but honestly kind of intimidating. Uh, I want to do well by you, the listener, and not embarrass the Christian Humanist Radio Network. So, if you could send me some ideas about what to cover, what interviews to try and book, what wild goose theme you find interesting, I'd love it. The Facebook page is a good uh, place for this feedback. We also have a blog on our website, uh, sectarianreviewpodcast.weebly.com. And, of course, our email, sectarianreview at gmail.com. And you can also tweet at the show, at sectarianreview, or me personally, at Danny P. Anderson. Furthermore... Wild Goose has really graciously offered a discount to our listeners. If you go to the tickets page at the uh, wildgoosefestival.org uh, website and use the promo code GOOSECAST2016, that's G-O-O-S-E-C-A-S-T-2016, and I believe the G and the C are capitalized, you will receive a 25% discount. Uh, I'd love to meet any of you, and if, if you can make it, and I could use all the moral support I could get, frankly. Uh, now, one more thing before we jump back into the tinfoil hat crowd. I'd like to play a message from the Christian Humanist Podcast, Nathan Gilmore, about a previous episode we recorded about antiheroes. 
Hey, Sectarian Review listeners, this is Nathan Gilmore from the Christian Humanist Podcast. Danny recorded a show a while back on anti-heroes, this particular character type we usually associate with comic book movies, but also with some of the recent TV series, and he wanted me to talk a little bit about it, so here's my take on it. I think that anti-heroes mainly get the better of morally good characters only when we think of them in the abstract. They are gritty as opposed to one-dimensional, and they're complex rather than simple. But when you situate a good character in a long enough narrative, my sense is that the good character actually becomes more interesting than the anti-hero, largely because the good character progresses and regresses in a way that's intelligible rather than simply differing at random at any given moment. So let me give you an example. One good character that immediately comes to mind is Raylan Givens from Justified. I'll try to limit my spoilers here, but he begins that series as a fairly typical anti-hero character. He's violent. He disregards authority up until that disregard threatens to end his career, and he treats his return to Kentucky as a chance to settle his own personal vendettas. But as the seasons progress and he spends more time with Art, who is the good character who's significantly further down life's road, his moral standing rises and falls in ways that viewers can follow, and the complexity arises precisely as he has to weigh more personal desires for gratification against more other directed calls for justice and mercy. Another example might be the Avengers Unlimited version of Captain America, the one that the Disney Avengers movies puts forth. I'll try to limit my spoilers on Captain America Civil War, although it's a pretty great movie. In these movies, you get a character who, in the World War II segment of his story, has to endure the humiliation before the experiment at at the hands of a bigger man. And then after the experiment, he has to endure more humiliation as his country refuses to use his talents for real military action. His ultimate rise to prominence is satisfying precisely because of his endurance before he rises. Now, when he emerges into Tony Stark's world, the 21st century, his character is a tragic one and thus satisfying in a different way, literarily speaking. As the world goes the way of Nick Fury and Tony Stark, Cap faces temptations to go intelligence agency Machiavellian or technocratic relativist, But instead, he remains true to a definitive vision of American liberty, naturally, and thus he becomes more interesting for my money than he would be if he stood willing to throw away such ideals at any any given turn as his impulse led him. So for my money, heroes, as opposed to anti-heroes, ultimately get more interesting as the timeline gets longer, and therefore, unlike, say, Tony Soprano, who really gets so uninteresting that you have to bring in a psychopath of the season every year in The Sopranos, a really good character actually stays interesting longer than the anti-hero. That's my case. Listeners, obviously tell Danny if you think I'm wrong. Danny, you feel free to tell me I'm wrong. And listeners, listen in soon because uh, Danny and I and hopefully some other panelists will be digging into Marvel's Hell's Kitchen series. Uh, Some of you know that they've done two seasons of Daredevil and one of Jessica Jones. These are characters from the Defenders franchise set in the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood of New York. Uh, It's really a good chance to reflect on heroes, anti-heroes, what it would mean to be a Christian superhero, all kinds of groovy things. You know Danny loves talking about this stuff, so tune in. That episode's coming down the pike. This is Nathan Gilmore from the Christian Humanist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Well, let me say that I don't think Nathan is wrong. 
I love his insight about the difference between a hero and an anti-hero and his claims about narrative. And I personally also love Justified as well. And yes, you can expect hopefully soon an episode about the Hell's Kitchen quadrant of the Marvel Cinematic Universe very soon. But before that, we have some conspiracies to talk about. So let's return to the conversation Jordan Poss and I had. Well, welcome back to uh, part two of the conspiracy theory episode. Um, Jordan, we had left off talking last week about postmodernism and that sort of thing. And we're going to work up to, I know that you have like a taxonomy of conspiracy theories, where how, to, kind of, how to categorize them basically um, uh, that you want to get into. And I, I do have one sort of historical thing that I know about uh, that uh, because of my interest in Jewish um, studies, but um, uh, we've been kind of talking around the idea of anti-Semitism, the idea of worldwide banking and, and, and whatnot. And when you were talking about some of the uh, Roman um, stories about Christian Eucharist practice as being cannibalism and stuff, that reminds me of the blood libel, for example, um, that um, people have about um, Jews, sacrificing Gentile babies for their rituals and that sort of thing. Um, But there is a – and people to this day will still um, cite this as if it is a a true document. There's this document that was published (laughs) in in Russia. You probably know where I'm going. The the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, right? And so – or Zion. And so this is supposedly a document that the Jewish conspiracy came up with. To uh, to lay out their plan to take over the world and um, and historically it's all but certain that this was a, a czarist attempt <laughs> to actually right. um, rile up uh, pogroms and anti-Semitic sentiment uh, within Russia and and yet this document persists and particularly among many white supremacist groups and uh, yeah. and others um, it is spoken as if it's a true thing and uh, the idea basically is that this is this sort of um, resident alien population that is not us, right? And yet they are going to take away um, and, and take over and destroy everything that we hold dear. And, and here's how they're going to do it. And so this was uh, this led to much violence against Jews uh, in, uh, in, right. in in Russia, in czarist Russia particularly. And so um, this is an example, I think, of. I mean, it isn't the the production of that document itself is a conspiracy, is it not? Right. I mean, right. this is a factual right. conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it, if I remember correctly, I think I think um, the czars, whatever the czarist intelligence bureau was called at that time, was involved in it, and, and they kind of cobbled it together out of a couple of other things. I think they stole part of it from a novel. Yeah. Um, I, one of the other books I, I referred to a couple of them last time, but uh, one more I don't think I mentioned was a. Uh, Voodoo Histories, which has one of my favorite titles. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the Voodoo Histories, The Role of the Conspiracy Theory in, the sh- in Shaping Modern History by a uh, British journalist named, named David Aronovich, mm. uh, which I would definitely recommend. In the first lengthy chapter of the book, he kind of talks about where that came from, like the actual, you know, kind of textual history, so to speak. Yeah. And of course, the massive, you know, implications that that document has had for, uh, anti-Semitism ever since. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, today to this day, it's still considered by some people who need evidence for their conspiracy theories as that yeah. evidence. And, and, and so I, I think that that's a good uh, introduction for me, at least to the ways to think about how conspiracy theories work and how to categorize them. What is, uh, you, you've given mm-hmm. us a couple of the enemy within the enemy below. What is the taxonomy that you've come up with for us here? 
Uh, well, I can't claim this is original at all. I'm borrowing this from that book I mentioned last time, The United States of Paranoia. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I think it fairly adequately covers most, most of what we could talk about with you know some emendations uh, or whatever. And I'll, t- I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Uh, the author is a guy named Jesse Walker, and he basically categorizes the conspiracies along five broad, very broad categories. Um, the first is the enemy without or the enemy outside. Um, this would be international Jewry, so to speak. Um, you know, this this very often the enemy without is you know, it, it's it's them, right? It's the other. Yeah. They are trying to get us and trying to bring us down. So for anti-Semites, again, this is the the international bankers, which is a slightly <laughs> euphemistic way to say you know the old. You know the international Jew, the, the that kind of obsession of the early 1900s. Sure. Uh, for the Soviets, this was the capitalists. Yes. Right, because uh, capitalists have saboteurs; they're sneaking in, they're messing up what we're trying to do. Uh, and for you know the most extreme example of the, <laughs> is of course aliens. You know people yeah. who are not even from this planet. <laughs> um, exactly. And there are some great videos out there of you know th- there's one posted on YouTube by someone who obviously doesn't understand how. <laughs> cameras work and what focus is oh i know what you're uh, talking about <laughs> go yeah, ahead go um, ahead you know uh, president obama was giving a speech somewhere and there's a secret service guy standing kind of in the shadows out of focus out of the depth of field right in the background and because of what you know just the physical properties of lenses what that does to things that are out of focus um it gives him a very strange kind of lantern jawed appearance and the play of shadows on his face kind of obscures some of his features. And this YouTuber took that as concrete proof that uh, President Obama is being guarded by reptilians. Yes. Right. Whose um, who shape-shifting device failed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like he sneezed or something and he dropped his disguise for like half a second. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, well, thank, I, thank God I, for those sharp-eyed YouTubers. Can I uh, elaborate on that? I actually teach – I use that in class quite frequently actually uh-huh. um and uh to me so i actually see some anti-semitic uh tropes in that as well uh, you're talking about this enemy without this enemy outside and international right. jewry and the ultimate enemy being aliens of course and so this is a perfect way to right. um equate this that is actually taking place at an apac conference and president obama obama uh, is uh, addressing apac which is the uh, what is it american israeli <laughs> political yeah. action um so it's sort of like a yeah yeah you know what apac is and so and yeah. before like they show the alien who's like a or the the secret service agent <laughs> who's a bald man um <laughs> who uh, who I who I sympathize with, obviously, because I'm a bald man as well. And so, uh, yeah. but they show, oh gosh, Lee, um, oh I forget his last name, but he was the president of APAC, also a bald man, and he has this really kind of hilarious, weird-looking grin at the moment they choose to show him. And subliminally, what they're doing is linking him with the alien, right? And so the right. Jews are basically yeah. part of the reptilian um, enemy without. Um, Conspiracy, and they call it the Zionist cabal. Basically, is what the uh, the, yeah. the, the yeah. YouTube video uh, how they narrate it, and they narrate it with like a computer oh. uh, uh, talking narration. But uh, yeah, to me, that is a, a right. perfect example of an anti-Zionist trope finding its way into these more postmodern um, conspiracy yeah. theories. And, and so, yeah, go ahead. And that, well, and that's a good opportunity to point out something else I'll talk about later too, which is what I, for lack of a better term, I call it cross pollination. Um, the way these things don't have hard edges and they tend to bleed into each other. So there you've got, it's not just the Jews, right? It's the aliens, you know, 
they're working hand in hand. Yeah. I, I read an article and I cannot remember where I read this. Um, I, and I will probably never be able to find it again, but, um, there was a sociological study about conspiracy theories. And the, the finding was that a person who believes a conspiracy theory probably believes many. Yeah. Um, and there are ways that these just, yeah. they're almost like Lego bricks. They just very yeah. <laughs> neatly fit on top of one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could just extrapolate from one Lego brick, this massive structure of, of conspiracy. And, and so, yeah, right. um, what you're saying is exactly right, but I've interrupted well, your taxonomy. And, and, <laughs> oh no, 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 that's good. Yeah. I, I should probably, I, I tend to be uh, verbose about this stuff. Uh, so you've got the enemy without, we talked about a couple of examples there. Uh, the enemy within, right. And this could be, this is perhaps more pernicious because at least with the enemy without, you can usually, point somewhere and identify them the enemy within is living next door to you Mm -hmm. possibly in your own house right uh this would include you know in classic american examples you know protestant fears of catholics because unless you're actually a monk or a priest you don't have any outward signifier that you are one of these uh the masons right because they uh uh meet in secret um communists various yeah (laughs) communists yeah that's the classic example the reds right um uh, I just had another. Uh, oh, um, you can see a shade of this too, and this is one of my favorites because of Doctor Strangelove, uh, fluoridation. You know, that's someone within the country secretly putting things in our water, yes. right? You know, ice ice cream mandrake, children's ice cream. Um, <laughs> you know, and uh, I, I I mentioned that to lead into also, you know, in the '80s there was that fear of these kind of ritual child abuse, like satanic rings running daycares and yes. stuff. Yes. Um, people went to jail for that, you know, and only some are only now getting out after the evidence has been found to be completely made up in some cases. Right. Uh, but going along with a lot of that, uh, is uh, another uh, kind of attendant concept, uh, sometimes called agency panic, mm. uh, where sort of what you what sort of, uh, one of the underlying fears can be kind of a fear of loss of free will or your own agency, your own ability to act. Uh, you see this in particular, and there are still people out there who worry about fluoride. Right. Um, there's a Jeep. Yeah. There's a Jeep that I see around Greenville sometimes that has a fluoride. There's poison in the water bumper sticker. And I think of Dr. Strange loves every yeah. time I see it and laugh, <laughs> but, um, Kubrick again, you know, mm. and yeah, 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 seriously, he, he was in deep. Um, you probably killed Elvis. Um, so what you've got there, and you see this kind of mentality too in even less straightforwardly kooky stuff like um, the anti-vaccination movement. Yeah, and people yes. you know who people who want to get their raw milk that the mean old FDA won't let them buy. <laughs> um, you know, curse you, Louis Pasteur. Yeah. Um, you know, your the ability to make your own decisions is being threatened there. Um, you know, Masons are secretly controlling things. You think you have agency and you don't. Yeah. Uh, you think you have agency, but you're drinking the water with the fluoride in it, and it's you know, diluting your precious bodily fluids, or you know, it's establishing some kind of weakened mental state that'll makes you susceptible to mind control. Yeah. Uh, things like that. So very often, the enemy within is not simply a fear of treacherous neighbors. It can also go along with you know the, um, and I want to avoid psychologizing as much as I as much as I can. We'll talk about that again later. Uh but this kind of fear or um concern about the loss of control over either your own life or the life of your community. Yeah. Um 
Can I interrupt you real quick? Um, uh, One more time. I I hate to do that all the time, but I have so much to say about this as well. Um, The Enemy Within, obviously that feeds, I mean, these tendencies feed our popular culture as well. And so in the 50s, when we're talking about communists and stuff, I mean, you see this play out in popular movies. And so I'm thinking, obviously, of the invasion of the body snatchers, um, which speaks both to that kind of fear of the enemy next door, right, the enemy within, but also that agency panic. I'd never heard that term before, but I really uh, find it to be a useful one. The idea of losing uh, control of your own you know, self. And, and that's what that movie right. is about more than anything else. Um, as much as anything right. else. At and least. being right. And being subject to wills other than one's own, even, even if, even if you're still making your own choices, your choices being limited by the resources at your disposal, you know, because, well, I can't drink my own water anymore because it's fluoridated. So what am I going to do? Right. Um, right. And, uh, one, Oh, sorry. Well, and, and the last thing I was going to say about that is that about agency panic is, um, I, uh, at the risk of offending people, um, there are like uh, pyramid scheme type economic activities with these sort of, um, you know, it's essential oils. And uh, you mentioned anti-vaccination. And these <laughs> things kind of go in. And, and the, yeah. those things oftentimes, at least the way they're promoted, is that they're a remedy to these large kind of like fluorination type um, ways to take away right. your own in, uh, agency. Uh, and, and I feel like that is a point at which you see this arising in Christian mainstream churches, uh, mainstream Christian right. churches, because very often for whatever reason, and this could be a podcast itself, like those things take advantage of the stru- the, the social structures of Christian churches um, to, yeah. to operate. And so I, I think that this is a moment where you can sort of see the infiltration of conspiratorial thinking um, in contemporary times into sort of Christian spaces. But um, go ahead. Yeah, I, absolutely. I interrupted yet again. Uh, no, that's good. Uh, and yeah, and I, I could I could go off on that for another hour myself too. So I'll, <laughs> I'll just move along again. Uh, so we've got the enemy without and the enemy within. These are, you know, kind of putting it in spatial terms on like a horizontal plane. There's us here and there's them out there. And if they get in with us, that's another problem. Yeah. Um. Oh, I did want to make one more pop culture point. Think uh think of the assassins that you see in the Bourne movies. Ah, yes. They're yes. always they're always just regular looking guys, right? Even Jason Bourne himself. So you could be passing a trained killer on the streets, right? That's that's a very subtle aspect of those movies. And I I love those movies. Yeah, no, they're <laughs> that's great. That's a very yeah. subtle aspect of those movies, but it it's one more little brick in that kind of paranoia that it gradually generates in you as you watch. Um that's that's a good segue to uh, so going from without to within, um, and you'll see that these all overlap and can kind of connect with each other and interact with each other. Uh, the next in this five is the enemy above. Uh-huh. Um, these are people in powerful positions. This t- this tends to be what conspiracy theories now focus on more than anything. Yeah. Um, you got you know the Illuminati. There's still people out there who are afraid of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the bankers, whether Jewish or not, and usually <laughs> that's just kind of code right um the industrialists uh big pharma um the fda uh the Bilderbergers, you know these kind of security uh what is it the is it the g5 summit the the, the the g whatever however many countries g8 yes yeah Yeah. g5 is a plane i think yeah (laughs) um yeah the g8 uh a few years ago my, my family goes on vacation to the same spot on the coast of georgia every year and several years ago the ga met at a nearby island it's not Jekyll, um, is it? So, 
Uh, we go to St. Simon's, which is right across the Sound. Oh gosh! Um, okay. Yeah, Jekyll has its own. Yeah, Jekyll has its own set of conspiracies. Yeah, I know. That's what I was going to say. Um, okay, go ahead. Right. You know the the what, what's that book? The monster from yeah, Jekyll. Somebody uh, gave me that as um, a way to convince me of these things. Yeah. 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 yeah they, they sell that in the uh, the souvenir shop in Jekyll Island. Do they? <laughs> um, that's now, where the, the Federal G-Bet Reserve. Act. Well, just as background, that's where the Federal Reserve was sort of founded, apparently. And one of my yeah, favorite conspiracy theories is that the Titanic was sunk to keep certain <laughs> um, influential people from stopping the formation of the Federal Reserve. And so this is one of my right. personal favorite conspiracy theories. But go ahead I, again. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. The G eight. Well, uh, yeah. A few years. Yeah, a few years ago, anyway, we were on vacation at St. Simon's, which is near Jekyll, and uh, get, getting all that cross-pollination going on again. And the G8 was meeting at Sea Island, which is kind of a luxury like golf resort uh, that kind of hooks around St. Simon's. Uh, and so we saw all sorts of interesting protests and stuff <laughs> while we were there, uh, you know, various kind of – not, you know, lunatic fringe and then just more straightforward people who are concerned about whatever um that that made vacation interesting that year um so we got the enemy above and then the enemy below which is kind of the opposite this is uh we don't worry about this so much anymore but just two examples i want to use um in the 1930s in the soviet union you got the holodomor right the ukrainian famine Ah. um this was partially a result of stalin trying to collectivize farming um confiscating property redistributing it uh, redistributing it and the subsequent failure of the ukrainian cereal harvest um and the ukraine has been a breadbasket for millennia um i mean the byzantines were buying the byzantines were buying grain from them um the failure caused mass starvation and this the Soviets doubled down on it because rather than interpreting it as the catastrophic result of policy, they decided that the simpler explanation was that the Ukrainians had sabotaged the project Ah. by destroying their own crops, by refusing to work, by not, you know, doing this kind of thing. So they went further with this thing and ended up starving. Uh, The numbers aren't really clear, but somewhere between like four and 6 million people, Mm. um, uh, uh, that actually spun into its own conspiracies later, actual conspiracies in which you even get Walter Durante, a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the New York Times, smearing the reputation of reporters like Malcolm Muggeridge, who's trying to convince people of what's going on and try to get them to do something, um, smearing his reputation, claiming he didn't have actual evidence of all this. And it turns out Durante is actually in the know about what's going on and is actually actively shilling for the Soviets. Mm. Um, so in the Soviet mind, the failure of their projects is always sabotage right people underneath you know we've got we've got the apparatus in place to yeah. make it happen but it's the people underneath that are not cooperating that are sabotaging that are goofing things up yeah um it sounds like more... many administrators from higher education i'm sorry uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah no seriously um and another one that has been around for a very long time uh which is endemic to slave societies is the fear of slave rebellion. Ah, uh, yes, um, yes, yes. This yes. goes back to the Romans as well. Uh, the Romans had multiple servile wars. Uh, the Spartacus War is a very famous one. Right. Um, in the United States, you see this over and over and over again. Uh, and this is not limited to the South because, by any means because um, slavery was common in all of the colonies originally, um, with the exception of Georgia, which started out with a ban and then had that revoked, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, in the 1740s, there was a – I just have to – 
put a plug in for my home state. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, Go ahead. General, General Oglethorpe, the humanitarian. Um, in the 1740s, I think, in New York, there was a series of fires that uh, the evidence is still shaky um, because of the removal, which had happened in the poor documentation. Uh, but they were believed to have been caused by arson, and the arsonists were believed to be slaves in the city of New York. Mm. Uh, this resulted in a bunch of reprisals against slaves, whether they were involved or not, uh, various kinds of trials, um, what we would even think of as show trials, right, um, and really severe restrictions passed to police the activities of slaves. Mm. Um, there's a series of events like that, the most prominent of which is the Nat Turner Revolt. Um, which is actually being made into a movie that I frankly have my doubts about. I feel, I feel like they're probably going to make it look too heroic. Um, uh, Nat Turner is a mystic um, who, uh, according to the stories, had actually taught himself to read at a very young age, um, who had visions. He was a slave preacher, which was very common in the antebellum South. Um, this was also at the time coming right out of the Second Great Awakening, so there's a heightened level of sort of religious enthusiasm and mysticism in the air. Yes. Um, and Turner, after seeing an eclipse, um, has the impression that he's he's got a divinely ordained mission to essentially liberate all the slaves and kill all the white people. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm skimming over a lot here. It's, yeah. it's a really fascinating story that I've read a, a good bit about. Um but what ultimately happened was that he formed a small conspiracy with a small group of slaves from both his own uh, farm because there were no, no, no major plantations in that area. It was not that kind of lower Mississippi stereotype. It was a Tidewater, Virginia, uh, formed a small conspiracy with some slaves from the area and on the appointed date launched this revolt that ended up killing somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 white people of all ages and sexes, yeah. uh, including a school children um, mm. hacked to death with axes yeah. um i mean the, the the thing is you don't you don't have to be an apologist for slavery to think nat turner was at least wrong-headed if not an evil man okay um, <laughs> which is which is kind of where i'm coming from at that it's like i don't like slavery can i also not like nat turner please yeah anyway. <laughs> uh, this uh this is in itself an actual conspiracy that is formed but it gives rise to a vast paranoia um his revolt was in Tidewater, Virginia, pretty close to the North Carolina line. Uh-huh. Um, and as word got out, as the militia responded to the threat, um, fear started to take root because it was clear that this thing had been very carefully planned and orchestrated. And so the what if starts rolling in minds. And so you get this kind of series of very ugly reprisals against yeah. innocent blacks across the South, um, particularly in the areas affected by the rebellion, but in various other places as well. Yeah. Uh, that's the old, that was one of the things that finally got in a lot of places, bans on teaching slaves to read past. Mm. Um, again, this fear of conspiracy, these conspiracy theories directly affecting policy, directly affecting the way people treat each other. Right. Um, um, that, that's a, that's a really, really big one for the enemy below this. Yeah. So you've got what, so to summarize that one again, I went off a little bit too long there. Um, a, minority population or some sort of subject population the fear usually revolving around rebellion or revolt yeah um or sabotage yeah that's um, interesting you can also see there how that would kind of cross over with the fear of the enemy without right in the terms of like jews for instance where they are especially in eastern europe denigrated minority populations um you, know, you think think of the pogroms right the uh 
their treatment by the Cossacks. You know, we just got to kind of show the Jews who's boss every once in a while, because even though they are despised and not in a position of power, they still have some kind of conspiratorial hold on the imagination. Right. Um, Wrapping up really quickly, this this to me, I think, is the weakest part of the taxonomy. It's the one he actually spends the least amount of time on. Uh, But this is the benevolent conspiracy. Okay. Um, uh, he kind of lumps a lot of religious belief in there with that, which I wouldn't necessarily agree with, um, obviously. Uh, but this to him is a little bit more in the kind of Dan Brown camp. Okay. <laughs> where uh, you've got – with Dan Brown, um, I saw where Jay had said I ought to hate on him a little bit. So I want to go ahead and do that. Uh, Dan Brown is a berserk button for me, um, especially after he dragged – especially after he dragged Dante into his cesspool. Um <laughs> With Dan Brown, you don't just have a conspiracy theory. You've actually got dueling conspiracies, right? Because there's a conspiracy that is hiding the bloodline of Jesus, for right. instance, and you know, promoting whatever progressive cause Dan Brown happens to be interested in at the moment, like population control or equal rights or whatever. Uh, those guys, you know, the noble conspiracy is trying slowly and subtly from behind the scenes to improve the world, and the mm. enemy, right, the other conspiracy is, you know, <laughs> Usually the Catholics trying Vatican, to yeah. stomp down on this stuff, right? Yeah. Try, yeah, the Vatican trying to cover it up, trying to assassinate people, whatever. Um, so for Brown, some of those conspiracies are actually benevolent. They are actually trying to slowly improve people's lives. Um, uh, the Illuminati, in some interpretations, is a benevolent conspiracy, yeah. uh, especially uh, for certain kinds of um, conspiratorially minded humanists in the other sense not the christian humanist sense um you know trying to roll back the influence of religion trying to put people on a societally equal footing trying to through conspiracy through the growth of power implement you know social justice things like that well that's dan Um, barton that's david barton isn't it um him trying to sort of uh uh, like use the textbooks industry i mean from his perspective at least um like use the the textbook industry to actually affect for his mind positive change in the culture right um so yeah Yeah. i mean from his mind he would see himself as a benevolent conspiracist to most right and see and you got it yeah (laughs) well you get an example there again of the way people who believe in conspiracy theories start actually acting out conspiracies. Exactly. Uh, Hofstadter, I think, I, I think Hofstadter specifically mentions the Ku Klux Klan, which yes. in its it, in its second iteration in the teens and 20s, uh, they were still racist against Afri- African-Americans, but they were also really concerned to get about um, Catholics and immigrants as well. They were very, very much a waspy Protestant sort of organization. Sure, yeah. Um, Hofstadter points out that they were so obsessed with defeating the Catholics, <laughs> they started wearing v- priestly vestments when they met in secret. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Fascinating. Those, yeah. Those <laughs> hoods, right. The, the, the bed sheets, uh, the famous bed sheets and the pointed hoods. Those are traditional. That is, that is traditional garb for some Catholic religious festivals in places like Spain. Right. Um, it, it's bizarre the way it works, but yeah, um, it's it's this kind of mindset that gradually sort of conforms you to the thing you're worried about yeah that's that is i think really helpful now it is difficult because we've uh conspiracy has become sort of a devil term right and so the idea of a benevolent conspiracy uh, is interesting Uh, i mean it's it's hard for us to think of without thinking of well this is how they think of themselves at least right so i mean suppose even ku klux klan think of thinks of themselves as a benevolent conspiracy i see why why you're saying that's a that's a slippery one uh in in this taxonomy um and uh in our 
current sort of Oh, I, I, this might be a function of just our, our populist moment. It is hard to imagine. I mean, I'm trying to think of con- contemporary conspiracies that fit the, uh, the enemy below, uh, like the, the slave rebellion type, because we tend to prioritize the, the, yeah. the lower, you know, well, the, the oppressed. And so it's hard to, for, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm trying to think of one, but go ahead. Yeah, if I might, I might be reaching here, but I, I think you're absolutely right that, and and this is something we can come back to uh, that um, the kind of prioritization of oppression narratives has kind of given a distinct flavor to a lot of conspiracies now. Um, but on some, on some of the more fringy uh, edges of the left, you saw a little bit of that paranoia about the Tea Party uh, movement. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, who are definitely, you know, very often kind of like working class whites. Mm-hmm. Um, not powerful, not, also not disenfranchised really, but also um, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just, I'll, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not a George R. R. Martin guy. I, I read the first Game of Thrones and was kind of done with it. Um, but his blog, his blog is bizarre. It looks like it's from about 1995 on GeoCities <laughs> or something. But um, if you visit, uh, if you visit, I remember running across a post. This and this was about the time I was just kind of done with the Game of Thrones thing. He had a post on there at the height of that Tea Party movement. Um showing a video that I'd seen going around Facebook of this like elderly Vietnam veteran singing the star Spangled banner at a rally, which, you know, it's warm and fuzzy. You know, it's this elderly man who has served his country and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and he, I think he, I think more to the point, he was singing the less often cited second verse or something like that. Uh, Mark. So I had seen this video and was familiar with it. I see that he shares it and I want to see what he has to say about it. And he had this little like, what we would now call an emoji of like a scared face, yeah, which struck me as childish. <laughs> uh, but he immediately followed that video with a clip from the opening of Cabaret of the Hitler Youth Kids singing "Tomorrow Belongs to Me." <laughs> okay, which was so. I, I I don't feel like you have to sympathize with the Tea Party movement to see that as deranged. You know, yeah. it was, but it was it was definitely that enemy below kind of thing i guess um i guess in terms of that you could kind of one of the fears we have now of the enemy below is seeing a group like that become the enemy above yes like being able to get into a position of power for sure yeah um, and this is yeah why yeah. trump is probably scary to many people yeah um right for sure well i i think that those are really useful um and i i guess where i want to we've talked quite a bit about some modern and contemporary ones um and so I, I just want to begin with sort of nine eleven again, and, and to me that yeah. that is um, a place to see. Depending on the theory that you you see, there is. I've seen theories that this is a an Israeli thing to, in order to get the United States <laughs> motivated into um, right. the Middle East again, and so this is obviously an enemy outside, an enemy without uh, theory right. of nine eleven. There's also, you know, the Bush family did it. Um, and so this was an enemy within sort of thing and an enemy with uh, above, right? And so you have right. um, that that one event seems to kind of um, be possible to be read, uh, to open itself to be possibly read from an, any number of these um, uh, perspectives. And and I think that what's interesting about it is that it, it, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It draws on these things from the past and uh, right. the, these, these 
these various kinds of conspiratorial thoughts from the past. And it also draws on contemporary fears about like the finance system and, and the military industrial complex and all of these things that um, conspiracy theorists really kind of spend most of their time on. Um, you see happening like you see circling around the nine eleven thing. So that's one for me yeah. that I, I think it, it, I mean, I don't mean this as a pun, but it's ground zero for um, yeah. many conspiracy theorists. Right. Um, and, and I mean, I mean, that's, if it sounded like a pun, I, I apologize. I didn't mean it for that, but it is, it is almost like the, the, where you have to begin at least um, to think about contemporary right. conspiracy theorists, because now we're getting to the point where the government is acting against its own people. Like, and I think that this is right. um, the, like one thing that comes to mind. What about you? Like, what are some contemporary ones that, that come to mind for you? Uh, I, th- I think what you just said there is like really, really um, poignant uh, that it, um, that uh, I was just thinking of this as you said it. Uh, one more book that I'd recommend is called Among the Truthers, mm. which has uh, has terrible, terrible Amazon reviews <laughs> because all the reviews are by truth. The truthers, yeah, um, they, dis- they conspire yeah. to yeah ruin it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, uh, oh, I've I've had Amazon reviews drag down myself. Um, I, I wrote a review of the Popular Mechanics Guide to Debunking 9/11 Theories, and if you want to read some real fever dream internet comments go find my review and just read what people said um <laughs> but yeah it uh talking about it as kind of ground zero um we we mentioned i can't remember if it was you know last time in the first half of this or just now but the way if you believe in one you tend to believe in others yeah um interviews i i, rec- I recommend among the truthers because the author who's a canadian journalist kind of fascinated with you know the neighbor to the south with all these kooky beliefs yeah um, interviewed people like Alex Jones, oh, right? Yes. Who's kind of the one of the major figures in the truther movement. Yeah. Um, and what he found in conducting interviews with a lot of truthers is that, um, first of all, they are not just truthers, right? They are very often into other things now, and many of them wind up in the. And you can kind of trace this because they leave so many trails on the internet. Uh, many of them kind of wind up at some point getting into the protocols of the elders of Zion thing. Yeah. Uh, it seems like all roads lead to anti-Semitism after a while. It really does. Yeah. It's, it's hard to to avoid. Yeah. That, that's one, that's one of my big beefs with conspiracism in general. Uh, but he said in conducting a lot of these interviews, he found that very often 9-11 was kind of this gateway drug, right? It's like you, you start asking questions about this and, you know, it's like reading an interesting Wikipedia article where you start clicking links and suddenly you've got a hundred tabs open. Yeah. Um, just happening in a little bit more slow motion, a little bit, uh, you know, this kind of slow ideological evolution into this kind of not just trutherism, but other things. So I, I just wanted to point out that I think that's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about the moon landing hoax, right? <laughs> um, uh, Sandy Hook, you mentioned, which is one that bothered me quite a bit. Uh, I think I think that's one where it's worth pointing out. Um, the way conspiracism tends to treat real human suffering yeah. and real victims as kind of like game pieces. Yeah. Um, you just got to, yeah. You, know, you just got to organize them in a particular fashion and suddenly bingo, you've got the truth and now you can, you know, 
shout down everybody else who disagrees with you. And um, they, they came up I've with a, a term too called crisis actors. So the people who you see on the news weeping and that sort of thing are actors yeah. put in place by the government and they're not actually someone who right. lost a child. I mean, there's a cruelty to, right. to that appears right here. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and the, um, again, I don't want to psychologize, but uh, you know, this almost sociopathic indifference to, what your actions may be doing to the people you're interacting with. Yeah. Um, there's kind of a, I was going to t- address this later, but this seems like a pretty good place for it. Um, this kind of moral crusader mentality that yeah. kind of filters into a lot of this, where you don't stop to think, you know, has this person been pestered before? Has it, what is, what is the, what are the odds that I'm the 500th person to show up at this person's house? Yeah. To, you know, confront them about what I think is the truth. Um, and you see that um, um, that that happened with various people following Princess Di's death. Oh yeah. Um, I think the Duke of Edinburgh was involved. You know, if somebody brought him into some kind of conspiracy theory, and you know, this is someone who lost a member of his family. Right. And a very you know, in a public figure, someone who has a it would be as a non-public figure. I don't know how hard it would be to grieve when you are in the light so much. Um. But being treated because probably because of that publicity as someone who can just be hectored, right, and be you know ha- have this grief turned to some kind of ideological you know game of speed chess, right? Um, various kinds of people. Uh, there was one older man. Oh, oh, I just had some sort of update delete my uh, video feed oh. there for a second. <laughs> Am I still here? You're still here. Okay, good deal. Um, there's some older man who lived near Sandy Hook who actually sheltered some students fleeing the school mm. um, following the shootings. And he became over several months, you know, getting all kinds of crank and all crank calls at all kinds, all times of the night, threatening letters, people just showing up at his house, pestering him in the streets, you know, asking him, you know, what his role was in this cover up, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, those are a couple of the bigger recent ones. Uh, Hurricane Katrina had a number of things oh, yeah. about it. Uh, FEMA. <laughs> yes, FEMA right? camps. Um, oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, I had a part-time job a year or two ago at a sporting goods store, which was great. And I had a lot of great coworkers. Um, <laughs> but one of them was obsessed with FEMA. Yeah. Um, and it, it was funny because he was ex-military, and he seemed not to understand what a military exercise was. Because <laughs> um, during that Operation Jade Helm, Jane Helm, summer, I was trying to think of the name. War- yes, that's it. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the military has to practice. I mean, <laughs> right? And then they typically pick out of the way places to do this because they want to cause as little disruption to ordinary people as possible. Um, this what seems to me like an act of tact looks suspicious to a certain kind of mind. And so this guy was talking about, you know, this is it, you know, arm yourselves, patriots. This is where the military turns on us. And yeah, there, there's just, you know, and, and that, that, you know, that ties into FEMA because FEMA's got their camps out in the desert, right? And if you speak out against, you know, whatever, you're going to wind up in a camp. It's yeah. Well, as you're talking, I, there's this suspicion of everything that, infiltrates right. a, a conspiracy theorist's mind. And I, and so I right. always tr- try to reflect back on my own self when I think about these things, not just make yes. fun of other people, yeah. right? And so there is a sense, right. I mean, critical theory is this sort of posture of suspicion. Like you read texts right. suspiciously, you read culture suspiciously. And so there is a sense at which uh, 
it's hard to draw the line between a, a responsible person and an irresponsible person during yeah. that conspiracy conspiracy theory class. Um, I, we actually, I, I read, we had them, I had them read, um, Jane Austen's book, Northanger Abbey, who, I don't know if you've ever read mm-hmm. that book, uh, this young girl is obsessed with Gothic romance novels. And, and so she sort of tries to see this everywhere she goes. And so she kind of gets into an embarrassing situation because she sees a murder where one didn't happen basically. Um, and, and, and so we kind of talked about the way that literature itself, like is a conspiracy, <laughs> like, and so, yeah. like, um, it, because you're sort of, I don't know, like, I feel like it's only fair to, to talk about this kind of culture of suspicion that comes along with this as both good and bad, right? You don't want to be a passive yeah. st- like stooge, uh, like, and, and not actually have any kind of impact in, on culture or society. But there's also a, a right. point at which pursuing that too far makes you into a total idiot, right? And, uh, uh, and, right. and really destructive <laughs> person. And, and so, and I, right. I don't have the, I mean, when I see the Sandy, Sandy truth, Sandy hook truthers, I can identify them as having gone too far. I don't know what is the event that makes that so, right? Uh, So this is like, I I don't know where they cross the line. Where is the threshold, yeah. Yeah, so, um, but yeah. And and as you're talking about FEMA and Jade Helm and and, and all that too, I'm reminded, because I I like the paranormal stuff, a big one now is the, uh, there's a NASA as part of some big conspiracy. And if you look on YouTube, (laughs) there's all sorts of things about the secret space program. And there are people who think, dating back to our recovery of, alien artifacts from Roswell uh, and other places that we've developed this stellar technology that we already have colonies on Mars and that we already have colonies right. all throughout the galaxy. Um, but we don't know about it because this is just for the elite and they know that Nibiru <laughs> is coming or something. Some, some giant planet is coming to destroy all of us peons and they right. want to get the important people off the planet. And so there's this secret space program. Uh, and so that's a contemporary one that is obviously fits under the enemy above uh, for me. But right. uh, And it's actually one that, seems kind of harmless <laughs> on a level that unlike Sandy hook, uh, which seems kind of uh, right, right. really icky. Yeah. Yeah. Icky is a really good word for it. <laughs> uh, talking about um, talking about not just being a passive, whatever, just, just think of the implications of a term like sheeple. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. you, if you're using the word sheeple, you are probably one of the ones who has gone too far, Yes. but yeah, there's, there's a, there's a tension there between again, just being a, um, and I mean, you know, this is the Christian Humanist Radio Network. You know, we are we are told to walk circumspectly, right? Mm-hmm. We're told we're told to, you know, look around to be aware. But that doesn't mean, <laughs> at the risk of being crude, that the people who are involved in tragedies, you know. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and so this is why it's an interesting topic to me. But um, I, I don't want to we're running a bit out of time, but I, what yep. are the problems that you face when trying to debunk these things? Um, there's a, a great series on YouTube. It's called Ancient Aliens Debunked. And it's like a three-hour film. It has yeah. footnotes and everything. They go through <laughs> point by point. It's really a brilliant job of debunking this. But someone who watches that show will never buy a word of it. So what is the right. problem one faces? Yeah, uh, I've just got a couple of like – I just kind of freeform some thoughts about this because this is the kind of thing we go round and round and round. Uh, so I'll just run through a quick kind of list of things that to me are kind of classic problems with trying to deal with this. Um, first of all, it's it's always a moving target. 
um, the conspiracy is morphing and mutating all the time. So mm. you can, you know, you can if you take the effort to actually debunk a thing, like Popular Mechanics did. I mean, I've got two editions of that guide to debunking 9/11 conspiracy theories. By the time those are in print, there are new theories right, right that have edged the old ones out. Um, so it's a moving target for one thing. Uh, there's always new evidence. Um, this ties into my final point, which I'll get to into get to in a minute. Um, a really great piece by a guy named Bill Whittle. I think I think he's done some stuff for Fox News, but don't don't judge him. Um, <laughs> it was a very long form article about having to deal with truthers, and he said it was exhausting because it's like you can dogmatically, irrefutably debunk a single piece of evidence. And there, you can never build a critical mass to sort of convince the other person. Instead, it's like, okay, well, what about this? What about this? Yeah. What about this? And you can systematically shoot down one after the other of these things, but they keep on coming. Yeah. Um, there's kind of a epistemic or hermeneutical problem here as well. Um, uh, Jesse Walker, he, he tends to get a little bit neurosciency in his book, which I, I kind of try to avoid. Uh, but he classifies this as apophenia, right? Um, seeing patterns in masses of mm. otherwise unrelated data right yeah yeah and this kind of goes back to, kind of back to the um uh that mass media that i was talking about i feel like that plays a really important role because now people have access to so much more information right just in a mass an undigested mass of info that would not have been available 100 years ago and um right. the hope back in the day was that access to this information would make it easier to disseminate the truth and in reality, it seems to be the opposite that's actually happened because right. there's too much. No one person can master all of it. And what you get instead is everybody kind of stepping back from this magic eye of stuff and seeing your own patterns in it, right? Right. Um, oh, man. Uh, yes, uh, seeing so patterns in a mass of static, right? This is so interesting, um, Jordan. <laughs> Keep going. Oh, it's, and, <laughs> It, you, well, I've, I've, I tried to play down how much conspiracy theories bother me when I did the autobiographical stuff. It's probably becoming clear now. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so what I what I kind of tend to think of conspiracy theories as, particularly the really virulent ones, and um, I think it's useful to distinguish between a conspiracy theory and conspiracism, that mindset that you get into. Yes, yes. Um, like, you know, Ben Carson, bless his heart. <laughs> took flack for thinking that the pyramids were used to store grain. Yes. For um, me, I posted something making fun of that. Yeah. So I, uh, have to, and, I have to own and, that. So. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I'm like, yeah, that's <laughs> see with that though, that is, that is incorrect information. Yeah. That is a, a wrong theory. Yeah. Um, if he had gone on from there to say, no, if you're trying to debunk this, you're actually one of the Masonic yes. reptilians who are trying to cover this up. That would evince a much bigger problem than a mistaken belief yes so uh when you get into that conspiracism right that mindset that ideology ideological framework mm. what i tend to think of it is as kind of a derangement of our rational mind right our pattern seeking um it, it's 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 us doing what we're designed to do yeah. mentally but doing it wrong you know starting off from the wrong jumping off point with flawed premises and following them as rigorously as possible into the swamp. Yeah. Um, and because I'm, I'm a Chesterton guy, um, he's got a great line in orthodoxy where he says, we tend to call madmen men who have lost their minds or lost their reason. Uh, he says the opposite is actually the case. He's like the madman is the man who has lost everything, but his reason, yes. right? All he's got left is that pattern finding 
thing, right? And yeah. so concern for other people drops away. Concern about actually correctly discerning reality drops away. Faith drops away, yeah. right? And all you've got left is that following the money trail, following that pattern. Yeah. Um, oh, I've, talked so about, I've, I've talked about that cross-pollination thing, the mutation of these theories. Um, my final point is just fatigue. Yeah. It's... <laughs> <laughs> it's exhausting to deal with this stuff. Uh, I just, I just kind of stopped posting stuff about it on Facebook a few years ago because there's so much of it and it never goes away and I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I agree with that totally. And it doesn't seem like it's really worth your, that kind of energy because it, it right. seems to someone who doesn't believe the conspiracy theory that it's just self-evidently stupid. Why do I even need to respond? Um, and, and so right. this is why it seems like such a waste of energy. And, and what I want to yeah. get at is so what aspects of my own thinking draw on right. these kind of damaging conspiratorial things. Cause I, like when you talked about seeing patterns, I mean, this is the way my brain functions. Yeah. I know I'm looking for, I mean, this is right. why I think I'm relatively good at what I do as a reader of literature is that I, I'm good yeah. at spotting these kinds of patterns. Right. And so, right. um, I, I feel like there is some sort of natural inclination to do that. And for me, this is, um, in particularly within postmodernism, we want there to be answers. We can't accept psychologically, emotionally, whatever, we can't accept that things can happen and there'd be no reason for that, right? Um, we can't accept right. that tragedy, like a meteorite might hit the earth and it could just be physics. It doesn't, it wasn't aimed by somebody, yeah. right? And so, right. Uh, and so we have to have this, um, um, this kind of explanation for things. And I feel like conspiracy theorists are really sensitive to that, that need. Um, they need yeah. to know, they need there to be a reason. And for that reason, right. I think they deserve our sympathy. Um, and not yeah. just our, my disdain, my disdain. Let me talk about me personally. I tend to. Yeah. Well, I, I can definitely, I, I can definitely sign on with that because, you know, in my younger days, it, it was definitely a function of arrogance. Yeah. It was like, you know, I, I just wanted to find incorrect information and shoot it down as brutally and as entertainingly as possible for an audience of friends, you know. And, you know, what I recognize now, partially because of that fatigue, that, you know, these are, like I said, it's a derangement of something we're supposed to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we see patterns for a reason. I mean, we're designed to do that. That's how we're created to function. Um, so what really, rather than arrogance, it should breed in us a humility, right? Yeah. You know there but for the grace of god yeah exactly um, I, I mean, mean we, we could we could yeah we could all wind up right there if we don't you know vigorously guard our minds and really really look at what we're being led to believe exactly and, and religion um has lent itself to conspiratorial thinking um mm -hmm. and, and so i mean people of faith need to really watch out for this sort of thing um yeah um, and to be able to measure this. And, and yeah, I um, like going back to ancient aliens one more time. Uh, I saw a clip, like an outtake, basically, <laughs> you know, the guy with the hair, um, Giorgio, the yeah. guy with the hair on that show. Yeah. Um, he, aliens. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the meme, he's the meme guy, right? Yeah. Um, I'm not saying it was aliens, <laughs> but it was aliens. <laughs> but I saw an outtake of him saying that the only way, the only way I'll be, I'll believe that this isn't what happened is if the aliens come and say, it wasn't us. <laughs> and I thought, okay, then let's just have, oh, wow. stop having this conversation. I'll sit back and enjoy your program. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, wow. when you're faced with that sort of certainty, it's like that is an impossible task to completely debunk. Now, what we can yeah. do 
I think as rational people is try to keep this out of our own mindset. And this, I think whatever your political persuasion is, I mean, mine is probably, I try not to say, but it's probably obvious, but, um, the, uh, uh, whatever your political persuasion is to not try to attach your opponent to some conspiratorial, um, right. Opposition Trump supporters, um, probably are well-meaning they're not part of some sort of bottom-up conspiracy you know what i'm saying and to avoid going there too early obviously there are times when it's appropriate but avoid like beginning from that position is i think one Mm -hmm. way to to maintain your own kind of integrity when when when, uh, approaching these kinds of issues but um yeah absolutely um i think we've kind of hit on why it matters was sort of our last question we've sort of talked around this the whole time do you have any final thoughts jordan uh, I was just thinking of a few things there. Um, if I had to wrap up, I, I'd say one one more negative thing about conspiracism, you know, not just theories, but the mindset, right? Yeah. Is um, first of all, it kind of uh, I, I sent you a link to that great Apollo moon landing video, yeah, right, yeah. where the guy kind of goes into like AV, like technical reasons, it was impossible to fake. Right. Uh, I really enjoy his conclusion, though, because he says, why does this matter? We're just arguing about a couple of guys on the moon, whatever. Uh, he says he's concerned about what, what he calls the ultimate fate of knowing, right? Um, I, I've alluded to it, but you know, this kind of thinking, the further down the rabbit hole you go, the more it warps your ability to correctly perceive and interpret creation, you know, what we are yeah. living, what we are actually living in. Um and, you know, I, th- I think there are extreme cases of, you know, the guys who live alone in shacks with, you know, the newspaper clippings yeah. connected with red string on the walls. <laughs> um, most of us most of us will never wind up there, but it can still do damage. Right. right. It can still um, one, one danger in particular that I see is that it it attacks charity. Mm. Um, you become disinclined, as you were alluding to, to interpret even your enemies as well intended. Mm-hmm. Um this uh, because of my personality that tends to be somewhere where i have a weakness right i see someone who disagrees with me and i'm like oh, what an idiot do they have any idea what they're doing yeah. you know that is not a charitable response and i have to guard against that you know yeah. um seeing seeing your enemies as mindless drones of whatever sinister power you want to invest in the opposition um that is something to avoid if if for no other reason than because we're commanded to be charitable right, right? um uh, you know, as I've alluded to, I think there are also, frankly, I, I have religious reasons for avoiding conspiracy theories. Um, I feel like it can undermine the role that faith is supposed to play mm. in day-to-day life. Um, we live in a fallen world, and life is hard, right? Bad things happen, and it's not always apparent why. Right. Um, conspiracy theories offer a kind of false providence. Yeah. Right? Mm. Um I got that line from Karl Popper that I sent you. Yeah. Um, you know, in condensed form, he's going from Homer, right, with the gods in the Iliad to the present. He says, the conspiracy theory of society comes from abandoning God and then asking who is in his place. <laughs> and you can see, you know, I'm not saying you can't be a good Christian and believe in conspiracy theories because Lord knows I know plenty who do. Um, and, you know, bless their hearts, as we say. But uh, I, I see that in opposition, right? These are rival gods that are vying for control of the world and I, th- I think the two exist in opposition and tension you know if you are so obsessed with the Bilderbergers 
that you forget to ask God to protect you. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a, a serious problem, right? Yeah. Um, very often the enemies and conspiracy theories, whether they're high or low or within or without, are God substitutes, right? They're omnipresent, they're omniscient, they're omnicompetent, they can get done whatever they want to get done, and we are left scraping in the dirt to find the signs of their moving, right? We kind of we're like Moses in the cleft of the rock, just kind of seeing their hind parts, you know, yeah. trying to trace that and, you know, yeah. uh, try, trying to expose it in some sense. Yeah. And in um, that way, it, it's a kind of paganism, isn't it? Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Ab- no, absolutely. Uh, one of the books, I can't remember which one it was because I was, I went through all of them kind of refreshing myself for this. Uh, one of the books I was going through compared conspiratorial thinking to animism. Yeah. Right. You know, we live in a world of invisible spirits and forces that are constantly acting on us against our will. And, you know, all we can do is look for the signs of it, right? The signs of this conspiracy. Um, so all, all that to say, you know, from my own kind of philosophical standpoint, uh, my own religious standpoint, um, life in a fallen world is hard. Conspiracy theories are easy and I don't, I don't think we're called to do the easy thing, right? I, I think the real world, which is far more interesting yeah. than conspiracy theories anyway, the real world calls for our disciplined interaction with it and not the essentially the cop-out into a fantasy world. Yeah, and, and that's a good transition into what I was going to finish up with is when you were talking earlier about um, – to pursue a conspiracy theory is to kind of pursue what we're built to do to a degree, right? I mean, you're, they're just, it's misguided. Um, I, I, I kind of in some ways then can equate it to pornography. Um, you have this, uh, yeah. this need for love, right? <laughs> and, and, and for physical, you know, love. And so, uh, but right. pornography is sort of like, um, a, a false image of that, that actual desire. And, and so yeah. in, in the same way, the need to make meaning out of life is something that's innate in us. Right. Um, and yet, and right. conspiracy theorism, if that's a word, um, uh, are, is, <laughs> is a way to, uh, kind of pursue that wrongly. Uh, I think, and, and yeah. uh, and I think that you've really given us a lot to think about today. That was awesome. Jordan. Um, we got, two- oh, this, this, I've really, I've really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm sure my wife is grateful for uh, me having someone else to talk to this about. <laughs> mine as well. Mine as well. Uh, she will not watch ancient aliens. I fall asleep watching this on my phone at night yeah. all the time and all the YouTube videos, which I can be obsessed with myself. Oh, yeah. So I have to really watch that. But um, yeah, no, this was great. I really oh, appreciate what- you coming back. Go ahead. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I just wanted to name drop one more thing that I never got around to at the very beginning of this. Uh, Unsolved Mysteries. Oh, yes. Robert Stack. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that that was – yes. Uh, you mentioned Ancient Aliens. If I can catch the original Unsolved Mysteries on, because they reshot them a long time ago with yeah. like a new actor doing the introductions and stuff. It was like Dennis Farina or somebody, right? I, yeah. I think yeah. they used Dennis um, Farina, yeah. Yeah, but the Robert. If I can Stack. catch the old ones with Robert Stack, I will watch those things every time. Um, I totally agree. They gave me, they gave me nightmares as a kid, <laughs> and I still watched it. I, you know, uh, talking about your own obsession with horror, I think I, sometime in high school and college, I, like, I kind of made it a point to ex- deliberately expose myself to things that scared me, so I would get over it. You know, yeah. And unsolved mysteries is one of those things. Um, yep. And, and for me, the original with Leonard Nimoy narrating In Search Of. I don't know if you remember that show. Yes. Um, like, oh, man. I yeah. loved In Search Of. I just like, That was great. Yeah. <laughs> so for I me, it's the same I, thing. I want to say our church library had the episode about 
Sodom and Gomorrah or oh. something like. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'm sure yeah, they did. It, oh. that, that's fantastic stuff. Yeah. So I this was awesome for me. I really appreciate it. And I think we hit the right balance of fun and seriousness that these yeah. things uh, that these this way of thinking requires. And and so, um, Jordan Poss, thanks again um, for, uh, oh, for coming yeah, on for the show. Me. And, you know, I I keep forgetting, you've got a novel that someone should look out, right? Oh, yeah. Like, what, what is your novel? I have you here on... on- uh, well, I, I don't want to turn this into a commercial. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I have a novel that I've published. I'm actually working on another one. And I've, I've got another one way far back on the back burner about all of this stuff, uh, kind of a <laughs> I kind of think of it as a confederacy of dunces for conspiracy stuff. Yes. Um, which will, you know, I, which I will complete somewhere down the road. Um, yeah, the novel that I've actually got out is um, set in medieval Iceland. It's called No Snakes in Iceland. Um, it's kind of set, uh, it, it's inspired by the sagas, uh, the Icelandic sagas, uh, which I read a whole bunch of in college. And then <laughs> if, if I wanted to be self-deprecating, you could call it um, – Icelandic saga fanfic. Uh, <laughs> it's it's about a because um, I got my degree in Anglo-Saxon history. Um, it's about an Anglo-Saxon and English man who is in Iceland under unclear circumstances at the very beginning, but he encounters a ghost. Right, so there's an element of the supernatural in there. The I guess I guess I should say that one of the debts I owe in the things that I'm interested in artistically is definitely to unsolved mysteries because what they had there was atmosphere, right? Yes. That atmosphere is something I've, you know, I, I maybe unknowingly, but I think I might've been trying to evoke some of that kind of eerie atmosphere in telling this kind of, it's, it's essentially a ghost story. Um, there's some mystery elements and stuff in there and some, some kind of religious ideas I was working through at the time. But uh, yeah, if anybody would be interested in reading it, I would be, grateful (laughs) (laughs) is it on amazon yeah it's on amazon just uh search for my name or for no snakes in iceland um uh, it's available in paperback and kindle awesome um jordan pause thanks again um well that might be my summer reading actually that sounds like a lot of fun so um, i'd appreciate it (laughs) and i appreciate Uh, if you come honest feedback and reviews are always appreciated (laughs) (laughs) well i appreciate it if you come back again sometime uh we'll keep in touch of course and uh and uh and you take care of yourself um and to everybody out there thanks for listening to this two-part episode on conspiracies uh remember that the truth is out there so bye-bye Thanks for listening to Sectarian Review. Download us again next month for another hour of criticism, reviews, and opinion. In the meantime, check out our Facebook page and send us an email at sectarianreview at gmail.com. Sectarian Review is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Eternal thanks to Kristen Philippic, intrepid press liaison. Until next time, remember the words of Kafka, don't despair, not even over the fact that you don't despair. Bye. <laughs>